the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. You're having a great Wednesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, what we believe as Christians and why we believe it questions, anything and everything we'll do the very best that we can. All you have to do is dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area here, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, I know this gets old every day I say it, but we want you safe. You can use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button at the top of your screen. You will be connected directly to our studio producer, 340-9585. Because it's Wednesday. Now, tonight's going to be a little bit strange in terms of the atmosphere. We've been having our Calvary Kids Bible School, and it's a sports theme, and game on is the theme. And so our sanctuary is all decorated for Calvary Kids Bible School because we've still got two more days. By the way, it's not too late if you can would like to come. We have a ton of kids and are they ever having a blast? But I'll be sort of preaching in a Calvary Kids Bible School. That's our VBS uh, environment tonight. And it isn't one like the happiest studies in the world, so it's going to be a little bit strange. We're in Second Samuel chapter 15 tonight, uh, and we watch David giving account for his sins, sort of reaping what he's sown. So that's tonight. Uh, also, of course, because it's Wednesday, tomorrow's Thursday, and that means Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. Ladies, that's your day. She will be here tomorrow. Okay, let's go to some questions that have been sent in, and then we'll wait for your phone calls. There's a question from our mobile app. This one is from Chip. Pastor Ron is the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse I think 27, referring to the church when he writes about created things. Uh, No, Chip, he's not referring to the church at all. Hebrews um, chapter 12, verse 27. Let me read it for you very quickly, and then we'll get it. Um, In fact, let me go back a verse or two. Um, I'll go back to verse 25. See to it, and these are warnings. This is one of the warnings in in the book of Hebrews. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? 
At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And here's the verse in question. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. So, Chip, what he's telling us here is that he's going to shake everything, making everything new. And the only things that can't be shaken are the things of God. Now, in a practical sense, we know that the world uh, is going to come to an end. The way we know it, uh, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. That's where we will reside. And the, the beauty of, of this verse is that the things that are so important to us here on earth don't really matter unless they're things that matter to God. God has shaken the earth before. He'll do it again. And the only thing that will remain are the things concerning righteousness, goodness, faithfulness, godliness. So that's all he means. It doesn't refer to the church. It refers to a removing of everything that is of this earth. So I hope that helps you. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Kyle, Texas, and talk with Philip on line one. Philip, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, yes, Pastor Ron, thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, uh, okay, I was talking with my kids, and they were asking me a question because they've heard uh, pastors talking about uh, being saved, and that all you have to do is uh, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you're saved. And it kind of confused me. It made me question what I've been reading, because in John 3, it talks about when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he's making it clear that you have to be baptized in spirit and in water to so i'm thinking it's uh confessing with your mouth but also being baptized in water to for a full uh deal of being reborn again uh, can you clarify this for me i would really appreciate yeah. it i'm gonna listen to you thank online you. thank you philip i can do that a couple of things first philip um the 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 Reference in John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus uh, has nothing whatsoever to do with being baptized in the Spirit. Um, it says, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit. And Jesus is referring there in context to the new birth. And what he's saying is in order to be saved, you have to qualify first by going through a natural birth. In other words, we have to be a human being. We humans are either going to be saved or we're going to be condemned. But But to be eligible we have to be the natural birth flesh gives birth to flesh the spirit gives birth to the things of the spirit so jesus identifies that for us so there's no water baptism at all in that he's talking about the natural birthing process a woman's water breaks and the baby's born so you've got to be born you've got to be alive and then you're eligible eligible to be saved so that's what he's talking about here. The other thing you're quoting in Romans chapter 10, where it says, uh, if you confess with your mouth, then you're saved. It's not that at all, just that, because what you left out was there, and believe in your heart. Now, there's two separate transactions here. You have to make the confession with your mouth. I mean, that's how we identify who we belong to. Oh, forgive me of my sins, Lord. Uh, come into my heart, take over my life. We say those words with our lips. But it has to be accompanied by a believing in the heart. It's not just the lips or the mouth that confesses. A lot of people, in fact, Jesus said, many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord. So a lot of people know about Jesus, but they're not known by him. And Romans isn't contradicting the rest of Scripture. You have to say it. But the confession comes as a result of your heart first having been transformed. So it's believe in your heart. This is much more than intellectual assent, Philip. This is uh, Jesus saying, no, I need to own you. I need to possess you. I, I, I am your Lord, and I call the shots. So that's what believing in your heart means. You know, we make it so simple, and when you hear preachers on radio or television saying, just say the word if you believe it's Jesus, uh, it's, it's so much more than that. It's not the name Jesus, it's the person Jesus, but you have to believe in him. Judas knew who Jesus was. Judas even did miracles, having been given the power, the authority by Jesus. But Judas never surrendered to Jesus. That's what believing in your heart is. 
Philip, I tell my church here all the time that one of the longest trips in our lives is the 14 inches or so. I'm short, so it's a little less for me, but the 14 inches or so that it takes from something to get in your brain down to your heart. So yes, we need intellectual assent, but we need so much more than intellectual assent. We also need to believe in our heart. And I say this as well. When you meet Jesus, he changes you. 27 years ago, he stormed the citadel of my heart. And when he stormed my heart, it changed everything. I wasn't the same person instantly. And the process of sanctification begins, and I'm not the same person today that I was 27 years ago after I got saved. But he changed me instantly on that day and continues to change me in the process of being more and more like him. So, Philip, once you're born again, this process of sanctification begins by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we become more and more like Jesus. In other words, Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. We will love, we'll have joy, we'll have peace, we'll be patient, we'll be kind, we'll be gentle. You know the fruits of the Spirit. So that's what it means. So once more, and this is important because that verse in John, uh, um, flesh gives birth to flesh and water gives birth uh, to... to, to, to uh, uh, the spirit, I'm sorry, flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to the things of the spirit. Uh, it's a very specific reference to a natural birth and then being born again, a rebirth in Christ. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus twice, once before and once after the verse we're talking about. He said, you shouldn't be surprised when I say you must be born again. So that's what saves us, this born-again experience. And it begins by knowing in our mind, confessing with our mouth, but then believing in the heart. Much more than just knowing about Jesus, it's knowing him and being known by him. So, Philip, I hope that makes some sense to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Mick from our mobile app. Uh, Pastor On, I'm a longtime listener and I'm blessed by your program. Thank you for your faithfulness. Mick, thank you for that. He says, I have what I would deem an unusual question about the use of the word stones in Luke chapter 3, verse 8, and in Luke chapter 19, verse 40. I know there are quite a few stone references in the Bible to include punishment, treaties, uh, even Jesus as our cornerstone. What do you think the meaning of the stones in these two passages are? One parallel I noticed was that it was used while addressing the Pharisees. Uh, Mick, one of the primary hermeneutics is when you look at a piece of Scripture, almost always the plain sense of the Scripture is what is being communicated. And in both of the passages that you asked about, one, it was John the Baptist speaking in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, Jesus is the one speaking in Luke chapter 19, verse 40. And all he's saying is, these stones, God will raise up from these stones people who will praise the Lord. And the reference is the same. It's a reference to literal rocks. Uh, if you've ever seen pictures of Israel, Mick, or if you've been there, uh, rocks are everywhere. It's one of the rockiest places on this earth. And they're always over. So it would be used in a metaphorical sense by the speaker simply to say, look, um, in Jesus' case, if these children didn't worship the Lord, God would make these stones worship the Lord, these rocks. And it's simply a reference both by Jesus and earlier by John the Baptist to the power of God to do anything to accommodate the fulfillment of prophecy. So they're just in this. These two passages are just real rocks. That's all they are. There's nothing more and nothing less. I think sometimes, Mick, we get a little bit too carried away um, trying to find symbolism when there is none intended. This is simply uh, John the Baptist and Jesus both saying, look, if these people stop, uh, then the rocks will start. To fulfill prophecy, God could make rocks cry out. So that's what he's talking about there. Thank you, Mick. I appreciate it. Very, very much. Here is our next question from Randall. 
Um, he says, I'm a new believer and would like some help on knowing what Bible to buy. Randall, congratulations on being a new believer. Welcome to the family of God. I, I'm grateful for you. Um, the Bible I would recommend, this is going to surprise some people, but I'm falling in love with the New Living Translation. Uh, I think it's written at a level and it's written with such common sense that it's a great Bible for a new believer. So that would be what I would suggest, a New Living Translation. Randall, the only one that I would suggest over that in terms of a preference would be the 1984 version of the NIV. Um, but that is so hard to find, and I wouldn't want you to get a 2011 version or a later version of the NIV uh, because they're not reliable translations. So uh, I, I think the New Living Translation, you couldn't go wrong with it. And uh, Paula has been reading it to me, uh, and I'm finding that she's reading it more herself when, when she'll say, uh, she likes to say, uh, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, or I'm reading out of the NLT. Uh, we really like the translation, and uh, actually, Paula's Bible, you should see it. it is, it's falling apart, and she needs to buy a new one. I think she's decided to buy the New Living Translation. So, Randall, I hope that helps. God bless you. Whatever you end up with, just be sure you get a Bible that's readable, one that you can understand and get it so that um, uh, you can develop a habit, a pattern of really, really reading, investing time in God's Word. You can't make your own way through this, Randall. You need to know where God wants you to go and what He wants you to do. It's the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Hope that helps. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Matthew. He says, it seems like more Christians I know are becoming less fundamental in their approach to faith. Is it necessary to believe the Bible or is relative subjectivity okay? Um, Matthew, I think the, the word you meant is orthodox in their approach to faith uh, rather than fundamental. We don't have to be fundamentalist, you know, in the sense that the world uses it as a pejorative. Um, but, um, yeah, it is necessary to believe the Bible. Uh, God is not a, a God of relative subjectivity. He's a God that doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change the rules. How cruel would it be if God would give us his word? and then keep changing his mind. You know, that's been sort of the pattern of the Catholic Church from the very beginning. Every time a new pope comes, there are new directives given. The pope was supposed to be speaking ex cathedra, meaning speaking the very words of God himself, uh, but they keep changing their mind. Uh, if they were really speaking the word of God, what was true in 313 when the Roman Catholic Church was born um, would still be true today because God never changes. So um, I think, Matthew, one of the great tragedies of the contemporary church is that we have thrown away the Bible. We've gotten so caught up in which translation to use. We've gotten so caught up in how do we know it's correctly translated. Um, um, we've forgotten that the Bible is a book that God intends to be understood. When the Bible speaks clearly about something, we don't have to guess. There are things that we'll never know the answers to. But more, much more, we will know the, the answers. God gives them to us in his word. And um, if we don't hold on to that, then what's going to happen is we're going to have nothing worth holding on to. So I believe with all of my heart that it's necessary to believe in the Bible. Not to get saved, but once you are saved, we have to have the Word as an anchor. And as that Word is an anchor for our walk with Jesus, an anchor, David calls it a light unto my feet, a light unto the path. We have no anchor, we have no light if we don't have a Word. If relative subjectivity were okay, then we'd be lost in a maze of opinion. So, Matthew, it's very important. And for those Christians that you know 
we're becoming less, and I'm going to change the word even from orthodox to less focused on the word of God. Be a friend and encourage them to go back to what they knew was true. I love the fact that if Jesus said something was true 2,000 years ago, it's true today. I don't have to get up every day and find out what the new orders are. The word that he's given us, the Bible that we all treasure, has everything we need for life, for love, for doctrine. We're never walking around in the dark. All we have to do is believe it, hold on to it, and never let anybody change our minds. Now, I mentioned not exactly this, Matthew, in our Bible study last Sunday, when I told our church that the Bible is under attack in our culture, in this country, like no other time in our nation's history. Now, the Bible's always been under attack. God knows that if you can... Excuse me for, I, I, I misspoke. The devil knows that if he can create doubt in God's Word, then he's got Christians right where he wants them. And that's why living in a time when Christians aren't treasuring the Bible, they're not spending time in the Bible, studying, as Paul says, to show themselves approved, workmen and women rightly dividing the Word, then the devil knows he can cause us confusion. He knows that we're already lost. All he has to do is sort of spin us around and send us off in the direction he wants to go. No Bible, Matthew. We have no direction at all. That's why the Bible matters so much. So I hope that helps you, Matthew. Thank you for listening to the show. Here is a great question. Bruce says, How can I experience more of God's power in my life? Bruce, I could do a whole hour on this. Anybody listening from Calvary Chapel of San Antonio says, and he has. But the way you can experience more of God's power in your life is to surrender more of you to him. Learn that he's trustworthy. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't decide things on your own initiative. But be a man, Bruce, of the word. Be a man of prayer. And when you need to know what to do, or when you want to know what to do, ask Jesus instead of figuring it out on your own. Let God speak to you through his word. And the only way you can experience more of God's power is to grow in faith. Exercise your faith. I tell our church here all the time, Bruce, that growing in faith, exercising our faith, is just the same principle. You know, people go to the gym and exercise their muscles. You go into the gym with real flabby muscles and you work out and you work out really hard and over time, slowly, painfully, slowly, but over time, your muscles gain strength and you get some coordination. Well, exercising faith is exactly the same way. We need to get up today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and say, okay, Lord, I trust you. Today my life belongs to you as all other days. What about me and what about today? And as long as you're walking with Jesus, he's going to take you places and show you things. And the things that he's going to show you are marvelous things. And you're going to get to a place in your walk where you don't dare say no to him because you'll be more afraid of what you're missing out on than you are afraid of what you don't know. And too often we take matters into our own hands. We pray for something. We read God's word. But then when chips are down, we make the decision instead of letting God make it for us. And that's what walking by faith is. It's exercising our faith. All faith begins small. But as we exercise it, as we give God a chance to show what he wants to do, what he can do in and through our lives. Well, that's when we're willing to trust him more and more. You know, Bruce, one of the things, and I've, again, I've said this on the program before, when you've been doing a program like this for six plus years, you, um, you've said everything. But one of the things that I say often, 
as I pray for the lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, and the confused. That's my prayer list for the people in the city that we live in. When I get to the hungry, what I always mean, Bruce, is the people who know there's more. You're one of the hungry. That's why I pray for you all the time, not even knowing you. I pray for you all the time because you're one of the hungry. You know there's more in your life than you're experiencing. You want more of God's power. You want more of Jesus' presence. And that hunger is a good thing. That's a fire that's lit in your gut by the Holy Spirit. And so let that fire burn. It'll always burn under control because God is a God of control, self-control being a fruit of the Spirit. But there'll be so many times as you give Jesus the opportunity to have his way in your life. He'll take you so close to the edge, you'll be terrified, but hold on. And what you'll end up seeing is how Jesus maneuvers in and through your life. Pretty soon you'll get to a place where you can't help but to trust him because his track record is so good. Very quickly, you know, we've done a lot of crazy things here at Calvary Chapel. Free school, free doctor's office, um, a, a house for ladies who are in trouble. Every one of those times, Bruce, I was terrified. But, you know, now I've seen God do so many things. How can I tell him no? And the result is you experience more and more of God's power. Great question, Bruce. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. We've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-5757. We'll be back in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the show we have 30 minutes left to take your phone calls and answer your questions let me uh i just got really good news paula just texted uh my producer and said, um, I get to announce a baby, second baby being born. Now, this won't matter to a whole bunch of you who uh, don't know them from, from our church, but Dennis and Melody Adesis are having their second baby. Uh, we just found out that she is pregnant, and praise the Lord, she's in Maryland. They're in Maryland. He is in the military serving our country, and uh, wonderful, wonderful people. So thank you, Paula, for letting us know that. And Melody and Dennis, though you're probably not listening in Maryland unless you're listening online, um, congratulations. And uh, I know now that the words can get out. Start expecting your phone to blow up. Babies due in February, I'm told. Okay. 340-9585. Here is a question, a follow-up question, uh, anonymous from our mobile app. Would there ever be a time when you would recommend reading the King James or the New King James? Absolutely. Um, the, the recommendation of the NLT was simply because it's a little more readable. Uh, Paula's current Bible is a New King James. Um, I was raised on uh, the, the King James Version of the Bible. Um, I'm, I'm visually impaired, so there are times when I can't see my notes, lots of times when I can't see my notes. And if I can't read the text, I just automatically sort of go into autopilot and revert back to King James because that's what I memorize for most of it. And and uh, it, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's poetic language. I love it. I love it. I love it. So Anonymous, I would recommend either very, very highly and without reservation. Now, why do I always say the 1984 NIV or now the New Living Translation? One of the things I think that is a problem with the King James and the New King James is simply the form that it's written in. Um, because it's not written like a letter, it's not written in what I call manuscript form, it's harder for us as human beings to keep the context our minds see verse 1 and then verse 2. Even in the middle of a sentence, you'll see verse 1 change to verse 2. Or in the middle of a paragraph, you'll see another verse come in. 
and and our mind sort of looks at that and makes every verse a standalone verse and and of course that's an enemy of of understanding the context of those verses it's simply much easier if we can read it like a bible now you can train yourself if you have a king james to look at it they've got the paragraph marks and all of that but it's just something that our brain automatically does so especially with new believers uh, I, I recommend the others because they're written more in manuscript form. So, Anonymous, thank you for asking. Uh, I love the King James Version of the Bible. I absolutely treasure it. Let's go to Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. I know this might sound like a childish question, but I always wondered about this. Where in the Bible does it say the dinosaurs existed? Okay, that's not a childish question at all. That's a, I know a lot of scientists that ask that question, Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy, it says in, in Job, um, and I, I think it's chapters 40 and 41, uh, we've got descriptions of what um, certainly appears to be a brontosaurus. Uh, we've got um, descriptions of other creatures that are dinosaur-ish. So we, we know that dinosaurs live, they're real, we've got the fossil remains. But, but where, where science messes up, Jimmy, is that uh, they've got them carbon dated into millions or billions of years ago. Uh, but the truth is that man and dinosaurs walked together on the earth at the same time. Adam and Eve were created um, on the sixth day. The animals were created prior to that. And so we know they were there. There's Leviathan that's mentioned, and and uh, uh, these aren't just fictitious characters. But remember, the names would be different from from what uh, our current scientists talk about. So um, there's there's uh, a few mentions. Let me recommend um, a web site for you to go to. Um, I always get the ICR, it's ICR, the Institute of Christian Research, not CRI, not that, but ICR, uh, and you can go, um, to, you, can, you can Google answers in Genesis, there's lots of information there as well, but uh, dinosaurs were real, and they live. Um, actually, Jimmy, the word dinosaur, I'm told, didn't come out even until the 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 19th century, the 1800s sometimes, so uh, that's relatively a new word in history, but dinosaurs were real, they were just called different things, and we have a description of of them in the scripture. Jimmy, thank you very, very much. Let's go to Tim calling from San Antonio, line two. Tim, thanks for calling, you're on the air. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to ask you, being a independent Baptist, we're looking for a pastor and we have a pastor search committee now i realize there's nowhere in the bible it states anything about a pastor search committee but should women be on the pastor search committee well i never considered that tim uh yeah i don't think that's a problem um i'm not a big pastor search committee guy but but uh let me say this um women are part of the body the only place they're excluded is from the role of a pastor. That certainly doesn't disqualify them from from doing the research and 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 being part of the team that determines whether or not a pastor is called to a particular work. So, yeah, I would think, in fact, you would probably be remiss if you didn't include women on that search committee. Remember, women can't be leaders in the church. They certainly can't be pastors. Uh, but uh, they can participate in every other form of of uh, the church government, and I think we ought to treasure the wisdom that they have. So uh, that's a question I've never heard. After six years, I don't get questions that I haven't heard before, Tim, but that's a great one. Does it help you a little bit? Yes, it did. I'm, you know, I'm curious, as you said, the leadership role of a Baptist church is uh, anybody... Uh, God has put man in charge, and I was just wondering if this is a woman in a pastor search committee would be showing leadership in the church by being on the committee. 
No, I, I don't think that would uh, that would qualify as being in leadership. But but remember, in uh, we've got we've got uh, deaconesses. Um, uh, if you're an independent Baptist church, you've got a board of deacons. Um, uh, there's biblical precedent for deaconesses. They they shared in an office there, and while it's certainly above a lay level position, it doesn't necessarily qualify as as a leadership position. Now, Tim, I know independent Baptist churches are pretty fundamental in their approach to things, um, but uh, I would treasure, I would really, really treasure a woman's evaluation of somebody, uh, especially as you're going to be um, um, auditioning, really, candidates. So I I think that's a a really wise idea, and no, it would not violate uh, any biblical statutes regarding uh, women in leadership. All right, I do appreciate it very much. Mm -hmm. My pleasure. Good luck. You know, uh, uh, that's a question I've never been asked, and I love it. We don't have uh, search committees. I'm getting old, and uh, uh, especially last year with the health scare that I had, you know, it's important that we have somebody ready to step up. I think the worst thing that can happen, and Tim, this might be something to consider in terms of the importance of, of sort of hastening the search committee's job. I think the worst thing that we can do is leave a, a, a church without a shepherd. And and I think this is something that needs to be done here at Calvary Chapel. We know exactly who is going to take over for me uh, when that time comes. And believe me, I'm in no hurry for it to come. I feel good and I'm doing well and, and um, I love what I do. Um, but when the time comes, um, I want the, the day after I leave this earth... I want for our church to function like it did the day before I left this church. And here at Calvary Chapel, now people will be sad, of course, but here at Calvary Chapel, everybody in the church knows who's going to take over. Um, he's appeared, for, substituted for me on this radio program. Uh, it's Pastor Ken. He's been with us now for 12 years. And and there just isn't anything that I wouldn't trust him with. And before I trust him with um, the church I love so much, the people that I love so much, uh, I need to know uh, his heart, and I know his heart inside out. And um, all of that to say, um, get the search committee in gear so your church is not left without a pastor. Good luck to you and to search committee. One of the advantages, I think, of being sort of um, non-denominational is... Uh, we don't have rules in terms of, well, this is the way we've always done it. Uh, I, I would, I mean, I bet I could go into that church and find somebody that God's already called to be a pastor. There's always somebody God never leaves a void. He never leaves a void. Good, good luck. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, do you think it is okay for Christians to date, and at what age should they start? Regarding the age, let me start there, Anonymous. That's not the call of a pastor on a radio program. That's sort of a mom and dad's call. So it's very important. Moms and dads need to be involved in their kids' lives. I know uh, young men and women who have been ready to date um, from a fairly early age, their mid-teenage years, um, and I know some who are in their 20s who aren't yet ready to date, so it, it just depends. Um, but yeah, it's okay for Christians to date. Of course it's okay. Now, we want to be safe, we want to try to avoid temptation, but honestly, how else are you going to get to know somebody? How are you going to get to know uh, how they're walking with Jesus? How are you going to get to know their heart, whether it's kind or whether it's harsh? Those kind of things. You know, the truth is when we're dating somebody that we're interested in, we're usually on our best behavior. So we really don't sometimes get to see the real person. If you don't know somebody, if you haven't spent time with them, um, you're exposing yourself, I think, to a potentially dangerous situation. Um, I know it sounds more spiritual to say that Christians should court, um, but, but that's really impractical in the day and the age and the time that we live in. I will say this, Anonymous, I don't think Christians should sport date. Now, by that I mean shop around. Uh, I, I think every 
relationship between Christians ought to be to determine whether or not there's a future to move forward to marriage. And the only way you can know that is to spend a little bit of time getting to know someone. Be a friend. Learn about their heart and learn about their walk. Once you realize that this man or this woman is not going to be somebody that's going to lead to a long-term relationship, then it needs to be cut off. But of course it's okay for Christians to date. And I think... um, I don't think there's any other way from really to know who they are. Again, be safe. Avoid temptation. Remember to keep the relationship pure and holy. Don't date like unbelievers do. The Bible says that we're to control our bodies, not give them over and passionate lust like the heathens do. Well, we shouldn't date like the heathens do. We should date to represent Jesus. We should invite Jesus with us on the dates. I think if we would do that, we'd find a lot less a lot lower incidence of divorce once we decide to get married. So it is okay for Christians to date. Um, But remember, and I don't know how old you are, um, children obey your parents, for this is right and pleases the Lord. Ephesians 6.1 Your moms, your dads, They love you more than whoever it is you want to date. But sure, dating is okay. 340-9585. I was just thinking that pause answering that last part of the question. I was just thinking about some kids that we've had in our church and school for a long time. Um, We've seen... I'm going to just generally say a half dozen what will be lifetime relationships develop. And we watch it develop over a lot of years. And um, if they weren't able to spend time together, now the parents supervised them, of course. There were a lot of group things and a lot of things with families, but you know, we don't want to get in the middle of something God is doing. Some of these kids here at the church there's such fine young men and women that if I had a son or a daughter and brought somebody home and said this is the one and it was like any one of these kids I would be doing back handsprings so filled with joy Victoria wants to know she says my question is about taking people off life support should we do that if hope is gone or should we wait for God to take them. Victoria, I think taking people off life support is the way we wait for God to take them. Uh, I have a directive. Paula has a directive. Um, we, we don't want to be kept alive artificially. We want to go and be with Jesus. When we're done with this body, we can't wait to get our next. But but making that call um, to take them off is simply saying, God, you have the power to raise to life. We don't want to keep them alive artificially. If you want them alive, you sustain them. And it's, we should pray for healing. We, we want our hope to be a, an honest hope. But, but it's okay to pray for healing. But when we remove the life support, it's not we're the ones making the decision to kill them. That's not it at all. We're leaving it in the hands of God. So, yes, it is okay to take them off life support. If all the evidence suggests that they're brain dead, there's no activity, and there's no potential for recovery, um, then, yeah, it's perfectly okay. Don't let anybody make you feel guilty for doing it. Um, take them off and let God take them at his own time. Here's another anonymous question. Nope, I've got phone call. Hold on. Oops, thank you. Got Wesley from Johnson City on line one. Wesley, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Pastor. My pleasure. Listen, uh, on our earlier program, I was listening to a broadcast, and they had a guest on the show, Dr. Hughes Ross. Have you heard of him? Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to bring to a point, uh, make a point about how uh, there's so much in the heavens and on earth that points to God. And, uh, you know, what we're learning now, and I'm sure it sounds like you're aware of it, 
is that um, these things that we see and everything in place as it is could not have been done um, accidentally. That science is proven, starting to prove and coming up with more evidence all the time. This guy in particular was talking about it today. He's a scientist proving that uh, this was all intentional and that there's that it's uh, mathematically impossible for it to be, have to have all come into place as it is um, you know by evolution or by accident or that that is uh, being ruled out yep that it has to be I agree. By design. yeah Wesley there there it, it, it literally takes a fool to not recognize the design. And of course, if there's a design, there is a designer. Now, let me talk about Hugh Ross for a moment. I read a lot of Hugh Ross as a young Christian, and he almost caused me to stumble. A really bright guy. Um, uh, he, he actually had a program on the local TBN station where I grew, where I was a young Christian in Southern California. Uh, and I would go to the library and dig out his books. He is an old earther. And he's very adamant that the, the earth is billions of years old. And, and, and I think there's a lot of difficulty with his scholarship. Uh, having said that, uh, he is very strong on design. Um, um, he's right uh, in pointing that there's a lot of evidence out there that suggests nobody can prove anything because the only proof we have is who was there. Um, but, but with every telescope that we increase the power of with every new satellite we launch into new galaxies we find things that we never knew existed before and there's no conceivable way and this goes all the way back to David writing the heavens declare the glory of God day after day they pour forth speech there's no nation or language where they're not understood so uh, we're we're never going to get proof for somebody who doesn't want to believe um, but but the evidence, just as I always talk about the evidence of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead, the evidence is overwhelming that it leaves absolutely no doubt whatsoever. Um, and uh, if there is a design, there is a designer. Uh, I could go one step further and think the only thing more intricate than the solar system is the human body the best thing God ever did? This is no accident. The way things work, and the 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 impossibility of what we are and who we are coming by chance over a process of years through evolution, is is infinitesimally small. So Wesley, I uh, I agree with you, Ross, in this area. Just be a little bit careful because he is an old earther, and. Um, um, with all of my heart, I believe the evidence suggests very, very strongly that um, the Earth is young. I, I personally think less than 10,000 years old. Um, so thank you. Keep, keep studying. Keep listening. Here's an anonymous question. I drink wine every night. Is this okay to do? Well, anonymous, when you ask that question that way, the answer is no. It's not okay. What would happen if you didn't drink it? Could you go to sleep? Could you relax? If the answer is no, then you're being controlled by a substance that God doesn't want you to be controlled by. Um, If you drink every night, that suggests a pattern of alcoholism. Um, Functional alcoholics are alcoholics, and, and we're not to be drunk with wine. So it's not an okay thing to do. I also want to say this. In asking the question, these questions are, are, are asked because the Holy Spirit's already put that question in your heart. Why not spend time with Jesus instead of drinking wine? Why not take a walk with the Lord to calm down, chill out? Nothing that you have to do is okay. It's just that straightforward. Is it okay to occasionally have a glass of wine? Yes, it is. I wish nobody would, but yes, it's okay. But it's not okay to be so addicted to something. If you want to test whether or not you're addicted, just try to stop. 
if you can't relax, if you can't get to sleep, then you're addicted. So it's not an okay thing to do. Two and a half minutes, let me get to another question. This is a question from Jessica. Do you think I should leave a church if it ordains a woman pastor? Jessica, I do. Uh, It's a church that shows um, a lack of reverence for the Word of God. Um, A church that cannot rightly divide the Word of God. Uh, And there's just no benefit from being there. Now, I realize that we develop relationships in churches, and it's really, really hard to say goodbye to those relationships. We get in the habit of going to the same places. But if a church has a woman pastor, they don't have a pastor. They certainly don't have a pastor ordained by God. Ordained by men or other women, maybe, but not ordained by God. And remember, we want God's pastor. And if your church ordains a woman pastor, what are they going to throw out of their Bible next? They're going to throw out the passages about sexual morality and immorality? Are they going to throw out an emphasis on the Word? See, either the Word means what it says or it doesn't. And it's issues like this. These are not essentials of our faith. So a woman pastor is a Christian if she believes in Jesus. The church is filled typically with Christians. But they're all settling for less than God's best because they think they know better. And the world around us, well, the world around us convinces us that this is the modern thing to do. But it's simply not something that we should have any part of. So, yeah, I would say leave it. Say goodbye to people. Tell them you love them. But I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That's as as clear as it can possibly be. So, Jessica, that's hard to hear. Sorry, but it's important. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Good calls, good questions. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Remember, tomorrow is the date day edition of the program. That means Paula will be live in the studio with me. Ladies, it is your day. May the Lord bless you and keep you. If you go to church tonight, let God speak to your heart. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.